Welcome to this introductory episode of Finding Balance, a special thin site edition of Baker McKenzie's Global Financial Institutions Industry Group podcast. My name is Chris Muir. I'm a U.S. attorney based in Zurich, Switzerland, working in the fintech, compliance investigations, and wealth management practice groups. This is the fifth of a series of special briefings where we discuss how COVID-19 will affect financial institutions and its impact on current industry trends. And in this edition in particular, we'll, we'll address financial infrastructure providers. Please bear in mind that the following represents our current views based on hypotheses that may evolve uh, during this rapidly changing situation. And for sure, there are other perspectives. In this series, we've asked ourselves how the future looks for financial institutions and what the medium and longer term impact of COVID-19 would be for our sector. So I'm going to pose some of those tougher questions to my colleague, Sue McLean, a partner in Baker McKenzie's technology group and fintech lead for our global financial institutions industry group. Hi, Sue. Hi, Chris. Great to be with you today. Yeah, it's so great to have you. I think maybe we could start with you just sharing a little bit about your background and how it intertwines with our topic today. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm a technology lawyer. I spend my days advising clients on their technology deals and projects. But a lot of my experience and focuses on clients in the financial services and fintech sectors. So it's it's an exciting time um, for uh, the financial services and fintech sector is huge wave of digital disruption that's happening and has been accelerated as a result of COVID. And so there's there's lots of projects I'm involved in to really help clients navigate um, this this new this new world and, and make sure that when they are using technology in their businesses, they're doing so in a uh, compliant and responsible way. Perfect. Uh, so in previous episodes of the Finding Balance podcast series, we discussed the impact of COVID-19 on banking, uh, financial sponsors like private equity and asset managers, and more recently insurers. Uh, but today we want to focus on financial infrastructure providers, which underpin the working of financial markets and financial services. Before we do so, I, I would like to ask Sue to explain what we mean by this term, financial infrastructure. I think it, it's also true, true to say that it wasn't until a long time ago that this subsector had a reputation of being kind of in the sleepy backwater. Uh, this is anything but the case today, though perhaps you could also speak to this transformation for listeners who are less familiar with that part of the market. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I think I think it ha it can be difficult for parties in in the financial services sector to think about this element, as you say, of the industry and, and understand really uh, what part they play. But it's an increasingly important part, and there are different ways you could categorise financial infrastructure providers. But I think for our purposes, we'll really focus on market exchanges, clearers, and, and depositories, and separately, uh, payment providers, which will obviously include banks, but also payment services firms and their ecosystems. And if we perhaps take each of these categories um, in turn, if you start with the, this first group of exchanges, um, I think it's certainly fair to see that compared to other financial institutions, um, when people thought about exchanges, you know, these were frequently 
characterized as sort of mutually and often nationally owned institutions that that really enjoyed almost near quasi uh, monopolies. But we have seen, you know, change over the years in this sector. Um, and increasingly, um, since the 2008 financial crisis, this is a sector that where there's been huge amounts of momentum and transformation. And, and if you think about exchanges as they are today, they're, you know, they've really become intensively competitive information data businesses. We've seen loads of market consolidation in this space. We've seen expansion, we've seen diversification. And if you look at a typical exchange group now, they will you know, offer a range of trading platforms and clearers, but then you'll also have information services and, and services like post-trade and risk management. So it's a really interesting um, area of the, of the sector. But then if you turn to payments... As much as thinking about payments in the traditional sense these days, you know, as well as obviously traditional banks and wire transfer service providers providing infrastructure around payments, you now often do think about these fintech companies who are providing new services and a lot of competition. And so nowadays, you know, that's a whole sector in itself. We have these tech-enabled virtual banks. We have e-money institutions online payment systems, payments initiation service providers, and outsourced payment processors. So a lot of, um, of different players in, in that element of the market. Great. I think that's a really helpful backdrop for the rest of the discussion we'll have today. Uh, so now let's turn to how COVID has impacted that subsector. I suppose we need to distinguish between the initial fallout uh, during the early stages of the pandemic in March 2020 and what has happened since then and what the current posture of the industry is. Yes, yeah, so, and, and obviously we're kind of um, almost a year into the pandemic um, now. So as you say, there was sort of the, the immediate reaction and then there's now the sort of longer term reaction, which is increasingly more like business as usual. So I think what we saw was obviously the pandemic um, having significant demands placed on infrastructure providers um, you know, whichever um, subsector they were in, whether, you know, you were a trading venue, a clearinghouse, payments system provider. And in those very initial stages of the pandemic, we saw really a huge, you know, a huge amount of volatility in, in the financial markets with, um, you know, record volumes of trading. And I think, you know, what we saw is that ultimately global central bank intervention ultimately stabilised markets and, um, we had strengthened risk management and operational resilience. And, and because of that, largely, everything has continued to function, you know, pretty well. Um, there weren't many instances uh, back in March 2020 where systems had to be, you know, taken offline. So the, the system, you know, was, was pretty resilient in the face of very um, difficult uh, circumstances. And I think, what we've seen in the payment sector is that when we started having these lockdowns around the world, there was really, um, you know, a collapse of, of certain expenditure being spent in, in retails and businesses, most notably, you know, in hospitality and travel after a long period of growth. And a lot of, uh, particularly on the fintech side, a lot of the, the, the companies, the neobanks, the payments providers really, um, you know, made uh, a lot of revenue, a lot of business came from traveling, from spending money in hospitality and, and leisure. Um, and so there was definitely an impact. What we've seen since then, though, that, 
you know, consumer spending has, in many cases, bounced back. Um, spending is, is is taking place differently. So there's much more e-commerce than there was before. Payments um, being made online because of stay-at-home restrictions. But we've also seen a boost there, right? So, you know, older customers who traditionally might have spent money um, in cash are now s- stuck at home and they're, they're, they're uh, spending online. And so... Um, from what we can see, although global payment revenues are not increasing at the same rate as they were before, they are still increasing. Um, and so the prospects for the medium and the long term are good. Um, but I'm sure everyone is, is hoping that we start to uh, you know, approach something that looks more like uh, normal um, as soon as we can this year. And uh, uh, inevitably, I think... Um, the long-term impacts on the payment sector is that payments, you know, payments online and uh, electronic payments will continue to increase as the customer base gets more, you know, tech savvy and is more familiar with these alternative uh, methods of, of payment. Yeah, absolutely. And so you touched upon this a little bit, but I just want to make sure that we teased out um, the thought. Uh, as fully as we should on what have you seen in terms of revenues and profitability in this sector? Yeah, so um, if you look at um, exchanges and clearers, for example, so in contrast to what we might have seen with banks and insurers, we've seen high revenue growth over the last decade, um, although depositories have fed less well. And in part, this has been as the result of, you know, regulations, um, uh, but re- and revenue growth has certainly been highest in the you know Asia Pacific region, followed by the US and then and then Europe. Um, I think in the future, what what we consider is that most revenue gr- growth is likely to come from process efficiencies and data management solutions. Um, and I think certainly what I'm seeing on the tech side is that increasingly, uh, you know, companies are looking to um, offer new services to, to buy side, such as asset managers, for instance, research and analytics. I think what we're also seeing, interestingly, um, from my perspective on the tech side, is uh, technologies such as AI and, and blockchain creating opportunities to offer new products. Um, and I think as a result, we're going to see financial infrastructure providers increasingly thinking and acting more like technology uh, firms, um, thinking about what solutions and investment in innovation they they should be making to help them become, you know, uh, more effective, more efficient, um, increase competition, and uh, disrupt uh, business models out there. And um, and part of that, and a sort of a key issue to think about, is market consolidation and diversi- diversification. Um, We've seen, you know, this a wave of sort of consolidation between exchanges. Um, and as a result, some of the biggest groups now um, offer a, a variety of uh, services. And given this large scale of consolidation, I think particularly around M&A, we're going to see the focus being on perhaps smaller regional platforms and also niche fintechs offering bespoke solutions. Um but of course, as well as sort of consolidation and acquisition, bringing um, 
a broader offering to an institution um, and, and the potential to create new business models and drive new revenues also obviously brings challenges in terms of, of integration. Yeah, absolutely. I guess in my experience, you know, working with an institution that just has kind of upgraded its infrastructure over time, that creates lots of complications. And that's just dealing with one company that's you know working to update its systems. And so con- consolidating several companies or services that are likely using different platforms, I think, <laughs> would be quite the challenge, as you notice. Obviously, there's a potential great uh, value, um, but there, but you can underestimate how much effort and investment and time it will take to get you there. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's all got to be baked into the business case when you're thinking about um, yeah, m- moving into different areas or acquiring uh, companies to integrate into your into your business. Um, there's a lot of preparatory work and sort of diligence you need to be thinking about to make sure that it's it's as seamless and effective as possible. Right. And so I guess kind of building off of the point you made in uh, previously. So the impression I've gotten is that there's an influx of new players in the payment sphere, uh, which I think has made differentiation among the companies challenging. And along with the increase in the digitalization of payment services, we also see innovative new payment regulations, uh, such as PSD2 and Singapore's Payment Services Act. And so all of this together is creating the backdrop, I think, for a new payments ecosystem. And so what trends do you think we should look out for? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is there's a lot going on in this area. I mean, the, the one thing that's we touched on before it's definitely clear is that there is a, just a continued acceleration to electronic payments away from cash we had that already it's just been further accelerated by by covid and if you think about even you know traditionally cash loyal countries like germany or japan we've seen significant de- decline in the use of cash um, and in other countries where digital already had really a pretty high level of a of adoption and acceptance, um, places like the UK, um, we've seen an increase in adoption rates. Um, in the US, where you know many would would argue that uh, they perhaps are a little bit behind in terms of consumer adoption of um, of, of digital payments, we've seen huge levels of adoption um, most recently. Which, in the ordinary course, you know, commentators said would take you know, several years. Well, you know, the pandemic has really um, pushed that along. Um, and, and, and I think that's not, I mean, obviously it's not surprising and we have precedent for that. Um, if you look at Asia PAC following SARS in 2003 um, and other similar incidents, digital payments grew tremendously. Um, and so um, the pandemic um, is not welcome obviously by anybody, but it has certainly had a huge impact on really pushing that continued acceleration away from cash. Um, and, you know, and as, as, as organizations and consumers and governments um, recognize the real value of electronic payments, that does continue to help to open up um, adoption of the sector. Um, and, 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 and all, you know, it's inevitable that that has been the, the case because we've got lockdowns, we've got social distancing. So we have seen this um, vast increase in alternative payment methods. And as a result, I think, you know, credit cards 
you know, are going to likely continue to lose some market share because there's more there's more opportunities to make online payments now. There's different types of um, services that users can use. Um, so things like a digital wallet that will store all your payment information in one location and you can use that to, to buy your goods and services um, is compelling for, for many. And we're also seeing, you know, initiatives around digital currency that central banks are looking at, that big tech companies are looking at, that the traditional banking players are looking at. So it's an interesting space, I think, it will, you know, to see how diversified the payment landscape continues to be over the next, um, you know, couple of years. Um, and I think the other, the other thing that's interesting is the the amount of acquisition and sort of M&A activity we've seen, particularly in the payment sector space. There's the need to, for some companies to scale up their operations, to move funds more quickly and profit from taking up more roles in this important sort of value chain for payments. So, you know, if you think about the payments ecosystem, an institution might act both as a, a payment gateway by transmitting payments but also as a processor by communicating transaction information. And because of this, I think we're going to see payment for providers looking to improve their competitive position by offering more value-added services to customers, um, including things like real-time information about, um, you know, what you're buying from which merchants, um, services around fraud prevention, those kind of um, value-added services that increasingly customers are expecting to get um, from their providers. Um, and a lot of that has been driven by the, the fintechs and the neobanks who uh, can see the value of those kind of customer-centric offerings. And I think the traditional players are catching up. And because those offerings are now available to consumers, business customers and business banking customers are also expecting, increasingly expecting to see those kinds of value-add services as well. So I think um, for all of these reasons, there's going to be continued um, interest in some of these promising payments companies by other larger uh, companies looking to um, diversify their offerings. Um, and I think lastly, continuing regulatory changes and cost pressures are just going to continue to put focus on the more traditional providers to upgrade technology. And I think that could also drive transactional activity. If, you know, if a, if a bank thinks, well, I could try and create this capability in-house, um, but I'm not sure I've got the right skill sets, the right people, and it'll take a long time. Or, oh, look, you know, over there, there's a very interesting company that's created an offering, uh, and perhaps, perhaps I'll just um, invest or buy them instead. That might be a quicker route to market. So I think it's, um, it's great for the fintech uh, sector that there's continued levels of interest and investment, even during a pandemic. And, and you might say, partly because of the pressures driven by the pandemic. Would you like to say anything about digitalization of wholesale banking and banking as a service? Yeah, sure. And I, I think it, it is it is important um, to touch on this because because it is is certainly a increasingly a hot topic. Um, so of course we've seen um, COVID accelerating change across 
business banking and not just in terms of payments, but in, in respect of related activities, you know, for example, you know, cash management, trade finance, working capital solutions. And the importance of these services to business users, I think, will continue to drive revenues because although it's certainly the case that there's competition coming in um, for, from new providers, the traditional banks still have real advantages here because they have these existing strong long-standing relationships with business customers. And and therefore, you would argue that they should remain in poor position to keep that type of business. But I think because of the competitive pressure and because what, you know, customers who who might be in the business banking sphere um, see in their, you know, personal lives or in the consumer space, that especially for sort of smaller and medium enterprise customers that really are, you know, in the, the targets or the crosshairs for some of the neobanks, I think the traditional banks are having to raise their offer and they are improving and having to improve their customer experience. Um, so that's that's kind of one side of it. I think on the payment, on the sort of banking as a service um, angle, it's really a very hot key trend. And I think we'll just continue to hear more and more about banking as a service over the next year or so. Um, so for those of, of who are listening who, who are not quite sure about, you know, what is this new additional kind of uh, jargon, um, banking as a service is really um, not necessarily a particularly new service in a way or a new concept. It's, it's where third parties are partnering with licensed banks to include digital banking services in their own product offerings or services. So, for example, a non-bank business, you know, perhaps an airline, wants to offer customers digital banking services, you know, a mobile bank account, maybe a debit card or loan or payment service, then they can partner with a bank without needing to acquire a banking license of their own. And certainly what we're seeing is that um, a lot of the, the banks thinking about how can they continue to increase sort of their banking as a service offerings, um, you know, and, and how can we partner with others to uh, provide these types of services? Because a lot of non-bank businesses would like to, to, to provide such offerings. They don't want to go to the hassle of having to get a financial um, authorization or permission to do so. It makes much more sense to partner with someone who already has that. Um, but there's going to be, you know, continued growth in that area but also, you know, it's going to be something that, uh, the, you know, the regulators are going to continue to keep an eye on um, because of any perceived risk that could come from those kind of offerings. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a key, it's certainly a key trend. Um, and I think one to continue to watch over the next few years. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and another phenomenon we haven't touched on yet is cloud computing, uh, which is, rapidly become a key part of the financial infrastructure ecosystem. It's fair to say that when you look at the boost that COVID has given to digitalization, cloud services are one of the areas where you can see the greatest impact as firms take advantage of the new technology. So what have you seen in your work, Sue? Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, we always said that cloud really was the foundation to um, a lot of new uh, digital services and, and really banks uh, needed to sort of get on their cloud journey to, to you know, to, 
to drive efficiencies and to become more agile and to take um, advantage of these new technologies. But certainly, historically, there has still been quite a lot of nervousness um, across the sector about the use of cloud. And that's even though, you know, regulators have acknowledged that cloud can be used um, and have issued guidance to try and help clarify their position on the use of cloud. But certainly there has continued to be some nervousness about using cloud um, in the financial services sector. And I think what COVID has done that has been helpful is it has really pushed some of those concerns, um, to, you know, somewhat to one side. That it's obviously still extremely important to make sure that when you do outsource to the cloud, you're doing so in a compliant manner, you're mitigating risk. But I think for many financial services organisations, they have acknowledged um, and managed to push through um, the message sort of internally that, you know, this pandemic has shown us that, that we have to be able to use these new technologies to be able to respond um, effectively to some of the demands now placed on us and, and some of the um, challenging circumstances we find. Uh, and so that has been helpful. And certainly what I've seen is um, a very active uh, market for cloud services um, during the last year. And, and I just don't see that going away. I think increasingly uh, banks and FIs will become more comfortable with using cloud and will continue to see it being adopted. But I think um, the interesting, you know, another interesting aspect around this is that as a result of this, you know, cloud providers, which um, typically sit outside the regulatory perimeter, are fast becoming an absolutely key part of the financial infrastructure um, of, of many countries. Uh, financial services systems and 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 because of that um, uh, that that you know that brings it, its own risks and issues so as I say you know cloud providers are being used to scale technology on demand help accelerate digital transformation facilitate data analytics um, and and more and more providers are offering solutions to help financial services firms to effectively outsource services that are not core to their business. So, you know, a, a there might be a cloud service um, solution for risk management, for regulatory reporting and compliance, um, you know, particularly around requirements around KYC and AML, for example. So there's lots of offerings out there, uh, not just the big public cloud providers themselves, but lots of solutions that are effectively running on cloud uh, or en enabled by cloud and um, they have lots of advantages but they also present challenges obviously cloud provides particular challenges in terms of issues like data protection cybersecurity, and banking secrecy and and institutions have to navigate that but but there is also the concentration risk that is posed um potentially by a large number of uh, players in the ecosystem relying on a small number of large cloud providers to services that they're providing back to the to the FIs. They're right. I guess you're raising a, a point, a broader point when you were discussing about the risk with cloud outages. 
And so if a financial institution is using, using cloud services and their cloud service provider has an outage for some reason that could jeopardize the business of the financial service. But there's you know a broad spectrum of operational risks that financial institutions face. And that that risk or that issue seems to be particularly acute for financial infrastructure providers. If we think about how failures of those providers can potentially have a wider impact on financial stability and the operations of the wider market um, than just for that institution itself. So I guess, do you have any viewpoints on how that works and how companies can address that risk? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, operational risk and resilience has certainly risen up the list of sort of regulatory priorities in recent years. And, and I think it's right that that can be linked to this in, increased level of digitalization and outsourcing we're seeing in, in financial services. So, um, you know, and there's been some high level uh, or sort of high profile uh, incidents um, or companies that, that have really kind of driven that message home. So, you know, we saw um, a recent example in the payment sphere with a, a, card, a card issuer who offered prepaid and charge cards. There was a, a technology malfunction by the outsourced card processor. There was a failure of IT services for many hours. And during that time, thousands of customers couldn't use their cards. And in that situation, the regulators concluded you know, this institution lacked adequate processes to identify and monitor these arrangements, especially over their contingency plans. And and so the regulators are really focused on, you know, what, what are the institutions outsourcing here? To what extent are they really closely monitoring um, these types of arrangements? And, and in that case, the institution was fined, but it was also its reputation that took a hit. So a lot of focus... Um, certainly from the regulators, not only on, um, you know, doing your due diligence on who you work with, making sure that when you do outsource, you're, you're properly managing it and monitoring it and you have the contractual remedies you need. Um, a lot of that, you know, a lot of focus on making sure that behind the scenes, the processes and procedures are properly in place um, to make sure that you've got proper arms around the kind of, you know, service providers you're using. And and so it's going to be increasingly vital as financial institutions are inevitably going to continue to use more players in the financial infrastructure sector to support their businesses that they continue to strengthen their resilience to any of these types of risks. So they've got to understand, you know, really understand um, the core services they're using, um, understand how the relevant systems and processes um, that are in place are supporting them and understand what the impact of a failure is. You know, if there's one failure with one provider, how quickly um, can that system be recovered or substituted? How how do you respond if um, a key part effectively of your, of your supply chain um defaults or, or there's some kind of failure. And we saw that um, last summer with the collapse of a major European payment processor. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, you know, a level of disruption. So I think because of um, a number of these sort of quite high profile incidents, um, a lot of focus is going to continue to be on operational risk and resilience. Um, 
But, you know, on the positive side, we have had COVID. Um, we have been resilient in the sector to that turmoil. And, and you, you know, it, in large part, that has been down to uh, the reforms that were put in place since 2008. You know, so, of course, new vulnerabilities, new challenges are always emerging. And this sector is going to have to continue to keep keep an eye out um, to mitigate the, the risks. And they're going to do this via using technology and putting proper oversight onto outsourced services. And, the you know, the challenges will vary depending on the entity you're talking about. But on the positive side, you, you know, I would I would definitely argue that a number of the providers that an FI might use um, in connection with its services, they're very aware of these issues themselves, right? Especially as we said in, in, in respect of cloud. Great, Sue. Thanks so much, and I, I totally agree. This industry is moving at a breakneck speed. I think you could try to study it all day and really have difficulty keeping up. Uh, but I think this podcast really summarized major points that I think would help anyone kind of keep up to speed with what's going on. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining this edition of the FI Finding Balance series. We hope you have found this introduction helpful. Please do take a look at the accompanying briefing, which is available on bakermckenzie.com. Do watch out for the next edition in the series of COVID-19 on global industry trends affecting financial institutions. If you have found this podcast helpful, you may also be interested to know that Baker McKenzie has produced a series of podcasts relating to the theme of resilience, recovery, and renewal in light of the COVID-19 crisis. My name is Chris Muir, and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us for the next edition of FinSight.